A seed in the ground has been sprouting, yet all around everything looked dead. Like the ground has closed every crack that the fragile seedling requires to sprout, out of the unseen to the seen, out of the death stage with resurrection power. But when the Kairos moment is announced, not even the concrete pavement can stop that seedling from pushing through. The trumpet has sounded, and that sound has hit the core of the earth. A new generation has emerged. A generation prepared and released by the heavens. Feared and hated in hell, yet the world does not recognize, neither is it ready for us. A generation coming from the wilderness of the word, where we have learnt how to die to our carnal ambitions, and embrace the mandate of our Creator. A generation who have overcome the temptations that appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and pride of life. Our sword is soiled with the blood of our crucified flesh, and desires of the flesh. A generation that has gone through our valleys, and made a decision to join the remnant. A new generation alive in Christ has emerged. A generation whose natural appetite was long overtaken, by the spiritual appetite that declares. My food is to do the will of he who sent me and to finish his work. The king's food and wine is not what entices us, but we choose to eat that which proceeds from the mouth of God. In a world of varied options, we are the generation with a singular sight. We have locked eyes with Christ. The author and finisher of our faith men and women who have made a covenant with our eyes. A new generation fiercely committed to the word of God has emerged. A generation who know that our lives are worth the blood of the Lamb, therefore we cannot be bought with any position, nor sold for any price. We have eaten of his flesh, and drank of his blood, therefore we can confidently say, it is not I who live but Christ in me the hope of glory. A generation that does not take lightly, the greatest event in human history, the cross. We know, it is because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, that we emerge in this season, to establish kingdom lifestyle in the earth. A new generation birthed on the cross has emerged. A generation with the Isaka dimension is here, we know what Kairos we are in, and what we ought to do. The heavenly assignment is all we are here for, to become the interface between heaven and the earth. Downloading all that heaven wants installed on the earth. Heaven looked down for a man who would stand in the gap for the nations, and this generation, in one voice answered. We are here. And are willing to be misunderstood for our faith, rejected for our boldness and courage, and persecuted for holding on to the word. For the joy set before us, we are willing to be identified with Christ. A new fearless generation has emerged. We might not be perfect. Our past might try to haunt us. The enemy will try to stop us using any available vessel, but, like a pilot about to take off, we are announcing. We are committed. No turning back. From the north, south, east and west, behold, a new generation, who will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. A new generation has emerged, backed by the heavenly host, with a trumpet sounding. Let God arise and all his enemies be scattered. A new generation that has no color, no race, no gender, and no status has emerged. The Ecclesia has emerged. We are the Cyrus community. Greetings and welcome to the Cyrus community. This is Business Unusual. If you've been tracking with us, 
we've been discussing how to arrive at a place called manifestation and the concept we've been dealing with is the idea of abiding in the word. And we've also said a few things. We've said, you know, whenever you get a new truth that conflicts with your current beliefs, that causes your mind to begin to disagree with what seems to be obvious to you, it's a time to ask yourself the question that this new insight that's coming to you, is it coming from God? Is it coming from the world? Is it coming from your experiences? Because most of us find it easy to accept experiences. If somebody says they've experienced something, they say they've walked in something or they've done something, we kind of think if it's been done, then it could be done again. But sometimes even when we believe that, we still struggle with the idea, can it be done for me? In the past, we've discussed this conversation that many of us easily believe that God is able to do. And we quote scriptures. We talk about how he's able to do increasingly, abundantly, above all that we ask, think, or even imagine. But we still struggle with the idea that can he do it for me? Is this, is this applicable to my life? Am I able to walk in this? And this is why we've been examining the idea of abiding in the word. Because if the word truly is as powerful as scripture tells us, it says things like God exalts his word above his name. He holds it with such high esteem. It also tells us that he holds all things by the power of his word. And it says his word is forever settled, meaning it cannot be queried. If that is all true, how come when we receive the word we struggle and we've looked at a few thoughts in the past conversations and if you've missed them, please go back. Go back and listen to those conversations. Take time and even abide in those very conversations because they will help you to understand where we are going with this. And one of the concepts that we are looking at and trying to come to the clarity of is it isn't as easy as we think to abide because we are so used to being tugged in different directions and to, to be distracted. So when it comes to actually hearing something and abiding in it, we actually struggle with that idea because we are used to reacting, not abiding. Abiding calls for conscious thought. Abiding calls for reflection. Abiding calls for us sitting and thinking through a matter until clarity comes. And that is not easy, especially when what you're trying to abide in conflicts, as I said, with what you currently believe, what you currently have experienced or have seen. Yet the word comes, and when the word shows up, it's because God wants to do something new. And this is what we need to understand. It might be new for me. It might not be new for somebody else. But if I haven't experienced it, then it is still new where I am concerned. And new here meaning hasn't existed before. New doesn't mean different. So please understand that. So that I am sitting in a place where if God says something to me that has never happened in my life before, then I'm dealing with a world that requires abiding. And you know, we continue to look at the scripture. If you remember, we're in John 15 and we spoke about Jesus telling us the key to getting whatsoever. Now, we want to move into that part calling he says, therefore, if you abide, and we spent so much time discussing abiding, and like I said, if you haven't seen that, go back and listen to it again. Now, post-abiding, there's supposed to be an outcome. So Jesus says clearly, if you abide, and my word abides in you, meaning when you arrive in a place where what you heard and what you believe are congruent, they are the same thing. 
you now have owned the belief. It is no longer an idea to you. It is a belief, a reality to you. He says, if you arrive at that place, he now gives us a very interesting um, promise. And whenever God gives a promise, he will keep his promise. It's almost like this is a blank check. He says, now, if you arrive at that place based on the word you have heard and you have believed, within that context, verse 7 of John chapter 15 says, you will ask whatsoever you desire. And it shall be done for you. Now that is huge. Whatsoever I desire. Please understand that there's been a process. This does not start in the middle. It doesn't say when you ask whatsoever you desire shall be done. It says if you abide then you will ask. And whatsoever you ask will be done. Now I want to break down the concepts of what was being said. And I often say this and I'll keep repeating it. Whenever a New Testament person was speaking to a group of people. We need to understand context. We need to understand meaning. And we need to understand where was this first mentioned? Where is this idea first originated from in scripture? What is the, the reality? Is there another place we can measure it? Or is this the first time it's being said? So sometimes it is the first time and therefore the context and the meaning gives us what it's actually saying to us. All right. So in this particular scripture, the Greek term used is a, a little different. The term ask here is a very interesting term because all of us, when I say ask for something, we simply think of verbalizing. Yet, the term that is in use here in the Greek is very different. It is not so much asking. In other words, it conveys no hesitancy. It conveys conviction. It conveys confidence. It, it basically is saying you are making a demand on something you are already aware of that you have a right to access. That's what ask here means. It means I already know fully that I have access to what I'm asking for. And therefore when I ask, I am really putting out a requisition for what already exists. If you're in accounting, it would say what is already budgeted for in, the, in, in your line budget. It's already there. The principle is this. You're not asking for a thing that doesn't exist. Not asking for a thing you have no access to. You're not hoping that by asking, somebody will have pity on you or sympathize with you or respond to your problem. So this asking is not based on my problem. Oh, I'm in such a bad situation, I'm asking for help. That's not the ask we're talking about here. This ask is an ask that comes from a position of clarity. Let me put it another way. The best way to express, to express this, not explain, express this, is in this way. When Moses said, let my people go, was he asking Pharaoh? Yes. But what was the context? It was a demand. It was the context of clarity. It was the context of a one. It was the context of, I have a right to what I'm asking for. So basically, what the scripture is telling us, that if we abide, we come to the knowledge of that which we have a right of access to. When we have right of access to, this particular asking is a demand. A demand from who? From God? No. A demand from the environment in which you exercise the authority you've been given. A demand from the actions you take, which is putting a demand, for example, when you plant a seed in the ground, agriculture, you are putting a demand on the ground to produce. You are expecting a return. That's a type of picture that this ask talks about. It talks about something that, because of an internal insight, 
you are now aware you can ask for it. It's yours, but you didn't know before. Now that you know, now you're asking. And what kind of ask is this? It's an ask that's basically saying, look, you have what is mine, I have come for it. Or I have the right to be here. Therefore, I'm positioning myself. I have the right to benefit from this situation. Therefore, I'm taking advantage of it. I have the right to move forward on this action and expect these results. That is the ask that is tied to the scripture. Now, if you don't understand that, you will think this is again going back to ask the one who promised. That is not the idea. God said, I have given you the power to produce wealth. So you have the power now, produce wealth. Your productivity is the asking. It is the putting to test or to task that which you've already been given access and authority to do so. So it says, if you're in this position, ask. Now what do you ask? So remember, we're not losing track. First of all, the word comes, it gives me insight. I discover what I have access to, what I have right to, and what I am allowed to operate in or have. Once that becomes clear, I now place a demand. The demand may be connected to an instruction. So when you're following an instruction, you are activating the ask. You are asking creation to respond to you. You are asking the environment to comply. You are asking, you're not asking God. God is the one who made the promise. You don't need to ask him again. He's already given you the permission. You can't keep asking for permission because once it is granted, you are required to take action. That is the ask we're talking about here. So if you understand that ask, then the question is, it says, ask whatsoever you desire. Now what I found so interesting is the word desire here is a very, is, is, is again, not the way we think of desire because in our natural concept of desire normally the concept of desire for english is that something that you feel you want therefore that feeling is what drives your query now this is different this means you've arrived at a place where you've discovered that there's something god said about you something god determined for you that is great, is powerful, is good. You were not even aware of the lack of it. When you became aware of the lack of it, it activated your desire for it. It just made sense. Now, within that context of desire now, you can make the demand. That is whatsoever you desire. Whatsoever you desire here carries the, the connotation of, of intent. It carries the connotation of purpose. It carries a connotation of will. In other words, now that I know what has been missing in my arriving where I'm going, now I desire that missing thing, and therefore I am placing a demand to access it so that I can arrive at that outcome that I've now just discovered was the best outcome ever designed for who I am. See, we've always thought that there's a conflict between God's desire and our desire. Whenever you hear the idea of God's your desire and your desire, we normally think we're talking about conflict. No, we're talking about ignorance. I'm the one who thinks sometimes what I desire is so low, it is so small, it is so out of place that I need access to God for my desire to be correctly positioned. Because what you desire ultimately cannot be non-beneficial to you. 
everything the word said that was seen was good. So there is no way you can have a desire that is in conflict with God's desire in that sense. But in a fallen state, when we are trying to access what is not beneficial to us, then that is the wrong concept. So that concept is called lust. It's not called desire. Lust is the counterfeit of desire. Wanting something that you think you want, which is in the end harmful to you. But desire is something beneficial to you that will bring change and transformation. That's why the Bible says that the, 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 the desires of the righteous shall not be cut off, shall not be blocked, shall not be limited. Because they are righteous in the sense that not that you're morally good, but you're correctly positioned in the purposes of God which are beneficial to you. So that's one of the aspects we need to understand. So when he says, whatsoever you desire, it shall be done for you, it means it shall be measurable. It shall be tangible. It shall be specific. It shall be seen. When we say done, the done is past tense, meaning there will be record, public record of it. I like saying it will appear in your history. It will appear as part of your history, where you are able to say, this was the truth that I had from God. This is how I was able to access by making this change when I abode in the word. This is the demand I made, the actions I took, and here is the result. It shall be done for you. It comes forth. Whether God causes people to favor you, become a part of you, or you put an action and it produces, it will be done for you. That's a crucial understanding of the results if you wanted to think about what today we're talking about is the results of abiding, the outcomes of abiding. Alright? Now, then Jesus says something in the next verse. He says, and you will bear much fruit. That means whatever it is that you will endeavor to do will be highly productive. It will bring forth, it will bear much, not a little. And the word bear means produce. That talks of a process. There's no production without a process. Meaning, as you walk through this entire journey, there shall be fruit. You, you will bear. He didn't say fruit will appear. He said your action, your movement, your abiding, your taking steps will produce much fruit. Now what is interesting is, fruit in the Bible is always the picture of an outcome of an action. Whenever an action is taken, there's an outcome. Fruit in the Bible also is a picture of the process. It says, by their fruits you shall know them. Where did fruit come from? A seed. Meaning, what you produce can be tracked back to a seed. What you produce can be tracked back to a word that God gave. What you produce can be proven to have come from a certain tree, from a certain truth. That's the idea. So when you bear much fruit, the fruit will be evidence of your source. The fruit will tell us where did you begin? What did your journey look like? What product were you heading towards? And therefore, what is it have you, that you've produced? And that's why, yes, we shall know them by their fruits. Meaning at the fruit point, we will know the progress. We will know 
the process and we will know the source. All right? So then he says, when you bear much fruit, and, and I found this a very interesting, there, there are two scriptures Jesus uses that define disciples. But we have chosen many other meanings for that term. But this is what he said. He said, if you bear much fruit, this shall be the evidence, paraphrased, that you are my disciples. So disciples, the proof of discipleship is fruit, not following. If you follow, you are a follower. If you produce and bear much fruit, you are a disciple. And that's what you need to understand because Jesus, another aspect Jesus used and said, by this shall men know you are my disciples, was your love one for another. And love was not an expression of your words, but an expression of your actions. So in bearing much fruit, there will be proof of love for one another. Put those two together, you're a disciple. So who do you think a disciple is? Now, let's just look at the, the concept of disciple in scripture. Disciple means somebody, according to this accurate context, who has heard the word. So a disciple has received a word. A disciple has abode in that word. A disciple has taken action, asked, taken action of that word. And a disciple has produced much fruit. You know, even when Jesus sent out the 70, they followed this concept. They said, even the demons obey us in your name. Meaning, he sent them out. He gave them a word. When they took action with that word, when they made a demand, even the demons were subject to us. And that was the key. And he said, to, and this was the idea that to prove that there was proof. And if you look at that process, you see all the things. They received the word. They abode in it. That means they continued in it. They took action in it, they got a result. And that was the key to how Jesus operated. So, if you understand that, then it's time for us to ask the question that we normally have taken and had this scripture, and many of us know this scripture, even almost by heart. And we've never really asked, in that sense, what was Jesus saying to us? And I want you to use the context that I have now used. The context that a disciple is one who hears, one who abides in what he has heard, one who takes action on what he has heard, and then he produces much fruit. That is the mark of a disciple. All right? So, discipline, therefore, in scripture, is exactly that. Abiding until you produce. That is discipline. All right, so here's a scripture I want to look at. And let's see how we've normally interpreted this scripture and the correct context and rendering of this scripture. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this is very interesting. Jesus now gives them a mandate. And that should be our mandate. We sometimes call it the Great Commission. But based on what we've just understood by the description of a disciple, we cannot impute our, only con our own idea of what a disciple looks like. Jesus himself has said, if you abide in me 
and my word abide in you, and you produce much fruit, then you are my disciples. Alright? He also said, if your love for one another is expressed and people can see it, that's an evident picture that you are my disciples. Alright? So, using those parameters, let us now respond to this commission. What did he actually say? He said, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and call disciples. He didn't say go and in, per se do many of the things we do. He said go and make them. Now making is a process. But we've just discovered how a disciple is made. So when he says go and make disciples of all nations, he's basically saying to you, go and give them a word, cause them to abide in that word, let them take action on the word you have given them, and let them bear much fruit. Then you have made a disciple. So that's the first step we need to understand. So if that is true, he said go and make disciples of all nations. So what are we supposed to be doing with the nations? I know we thought our primary idea was just to introduce them to Jesus and to get them born again. That's not what he said. He didn't say go to the world and introduce me. He didn't say go to the world and tell them about me. In fact, when he was alive, many times he told them don't tell anyone. Interesting. He said, go and make disciples. Are we making disciples? Are we telling people about the one who told us to go and make disciples? There are questions we need to ask. So go and make disciples of all nations. So that means, and this is the action you will take as you're making them. Baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You know, what I find so interesting is that we have gone ahead and baptized them in water. He said, go baptize them in the name. Is water baptism wrong? No. Water baptism is a picture, a symbol of baptizing in the name, though we call that baptism. And we know baptizing you in the name will not produce, baptizing you in water will not make a disciple. So, if he said go and make disciples, then he said baptize them, then that must therefore mean the term baptize must hold within it the configuration of making a disciple. Otherwise, he wouldn't mention it. That means the term baptize is crucial in our understanding. And then baptizing in what is also crucial. So first of all, let's look at the actual meaning of the term baptize that was used there. The word baptize there is a very interesting term. It means you have to be able to soak something, the way you soak pickles, until the nature of the thing soaked takes on the nature of the thing it is soaked in. It's, it's like submerging something. Listen, if we were to baptize people in water, we would kill them. Because it's not a dipping. It is a soaking. It is a staying in. In other words, what does baptize immediately tell you? Abide. Baptizing is abiding in the word. And what is the word? 
in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God so what is he saying go and soak them in my word it's called abide soak them abide until the nature because the word name in scripture is the same word characteristics behavior it's the picture of a person when a person's name is mentioned the meaning is supposed to connote the characteristics that's why god generally in scripture changed the names of people he didn't actually change their name to be honest when god creates you he did not mistake who you are so why would he create you with one name and then change your name no god changed the name back to its original in other words when we are born in a fallen state we are given names now those names may be literal or they just may be descriptions what have people called you how have they described you how has society called you and described you how has family called you and described you how has culture called you and described you all those things have formed a nature in you that may have nothing to do with god's idea of who you are and so when god shows up what is the first thing he did with abraham he took him out of the environment that called him abram and we are told in the bible abram means exalted father and it's almost like a mockery he was an exalted father but he had no son no children so creation will call you something nature nature culture will call you something that cannot produce even what they call you it's a false name it's almost a mockery of your original name it's almost making fun of who you should be because you will not be so god had to take him out of that context move him to a different environment and in that new movement god now had to give him his original name and it's a common structure it's interesting that when we talk about the ecclesia when jesus said on this i shall build my ecclesia when peter said you are the son of the living god he even renamed him what did he do did he rename him because peter had had he said flesh and blood has not revealed this to you when peter begins to hear god on that level jesus is happy because now peter can hear god and secondly in hearing god his true identity is revealed that's when his new name comes forth so changing of names for the sake of changing of names is not the issue here God is more interested in changing your identity so that your character aligns with the character that he called you to be. So when he said go baptize them in the name he was saying go baptize them in the character and in the nature of the father in the nature of the son in the character and nature of the holy spirit. That was the principle. That was the idea. Go and soak them until they go back to reset original and god made man in his own image after his own likeness god said let us make man in our image in our likeness whose the father the son and the holy spirit so man was made notice the term man was made in the nature and in the character remember he said let us of god the father 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what is God's intent always? He says, now that you've understood me, I want you to go and make disciples in the same original design that I had in mind when I created them. Go and soak them through the word until they come into alignment again, once again, in the image and likeness of God. Before Jesus left, he was clear. He said to the disciples, I go to my father and your father. And Philip said, show us the father. And he said, Philip, I've been this long with you and you still say to me, show us the father. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Now that's a profound statement because many of us are thinking that the picture of seeing God is something we do one day in heaven. That, as it may be, it means God can be seen before you get to heaven. In the context of the nature, the character, the image and likeness, as Genesis puts it, of God. So when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, and he says, and go and baptize them in the nature, in the character, in the persona of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it means we have to abide until we become. And the truth is, it's not an overnight activity. Uh, abiding in the Word really, sadly, cannot be done in Bible school. It can be taught in Bible school. It can't be done in Bible school. It has to be done in day-to-day -day life. It has to be done in whatever it is that we are doing part-time. It has to be done in the processes that we are living through. Because if we don't understand that, we'll keep talking about and teaching about, but not baptizing anyone. Because you can imagine if the assignment was simply to baptize nations in water, that's an impossible. How do you do that? Does it mean that God's ultimate interest was for us to just get people, get them to the nearest pool of water, dip them, Invoke the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we are done. We have finished his assignment. And he made it clear, he says, if you look at the last part, he also says this, he says, and teaching them. So listen, he didn't say, go and baptize them in water. After that, teach them. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. So in the teaching them is the baptizing. In the teaching them is the soaking. Is the teaching them is the process in which as you go through, and it's working through you, and God is working in that environment, that is how you're making a disciple. And remember, what is the outcome of that making? How do we know we have made disciples? We know we have made disciples when they bear much fruit. And when we look at the fruit, we can track backwards and see they were abiding in a word. We can see that word. And that word came from God. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, became our reality. That's the pattern. That's a principle. So if we say we are abiding and we don't understand that concept of abiding, then how will we ever make disciples? Are we even disciples ourselves? And it means that I have to be made a disciple in different aspects of my work. There may be certain aspects of my work where I have heard a word. It has become part of me. 
I have abode in it. I have produced. I have seen the outcome and manifestation. In that area, I'm a complete disciple. It might mean in some other areas, I am not. And that may sound different because we thought this disciple is a badge that you wear. We thought disciple is a title you have. We thought disciple is the activity of following Jesus. Now listen, following Jesus simply means walking the way he walked. Operating the way he did. Functioning like he did. That's when you say you're following someone. That's a biblical concept of following. Biblical concept of following is walking in the truth that you were taught by someone and no longer teaching the truth, but walking in it. That's what a disciple does. Now, for us to then begin to say, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, it then behoves to ask, what has he commanded us? It means in this concept of baptizing, we have to go, one of the commands was abide in me. There are many, many more. In fact, I believe, and I have a friend who made this research, who's God just graced for this, he found almost a hundred commands that Jesus gave in the New Testament. I command you, this I command. If you go, you begin to find keys, codes, patterns, concepts for different areas of life. And he said, go and teach them all I have commanded you. Listen, when I say, Go and teach someone something. I'm not telling you go and tell them that thing. If I tell you go and teach your son, your daughter to ride a bicycle, I didn't tell you take a pen and a paper and a whiteboard and begin to teach them about how someone rides a bicycle. It literally means go and teach them how to ride a bicycle. So that by the time you are done, the fruit of your teaching is that they are riding a bicycle. So when he says, go and teach them all I have commanded you, he is expecting people to be fruitful in our teachings. It means our teachings must carry the components of baptism, components of knowledge. When you teach somebody how to drive, they no longer have a book to read. They drive. If you teach someone to cook, they no longer have information about cooking. They can cook. So if we were doing what Christ asked us, disciples would be bearing fruit, not discussing fruit. It would be what they do. It would be the journey they undertake. It would be the process they live by. In other words, if we were to really do that, that was the idea. You see, you've, uh, you've heard us talk about the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And one of the things that you will notice is that the civil law was instructions to be done in the land. It was not an informational handbook to be carried around. It wasn't that they were told, carry these instructions with you and read them regularly. That was the moral law. The moral law was what was told, as you do that, ultimately, it must become part of you. You must have it in your heart. You must have it in your mind. So that was the moral law. The civil law was, if you carry out these activities, you will produce these outcomes. So if you follow, 
And what did God actually say in Deuteronomy 28? If you follow that which I have commanded you. Notice a command is something that can be executed. It is not something that can be believed. Something that can be received. It is only received and believed to be executed. So anything he said I have commanded you will require execution. It will require an action. It will require you learning it, mastering it, and doing it. And that's the whole concept of abiding. If you miss anything else that we are saying is that God's intent is to make disciples of all nations. That is his desire. That desire means they must be able to bear much fruit. Not to have good messages. Not to be wonderful people. To bear much fruit. And if you go back into the civil law in scripture, that much fruit is tangible actions and executions in the earth. It means whatever world you're operating in, whatever your skill, whatever your, your, your functionality, whatever it is, there must be much fruit. And much fruit always carries the connotation of good, profitable, beneficial. Those are the terms called good. So if you tell me that I'm bearing fruit, I'll ask only one question. Is it good? How? Is it beneficial to who? Is it profitable? When you begin to see those contexts, then you understand and ask yourself the question, when I hear a word, in what area am I supposed to be bearing, not fruit, much fruit? Because in my bearing much fruit, the Bible says, God is pleased. And it says that we shall be known as his disciples. Now that is a profound concept to just abide in. Just that idea itself is worth abiding in. But you mean when I hear a word from God, the expectation is that I should abide in it until I can see God's expectations and plans for me within that word. And those expectations and plans are good. And if they are good, they should cause me to take action that produces. And whatever I produce is good. It's profitable. It is beneficial. Then I am his disciple. That's a whole different journey from what we've thought discipleship means. So, in conclusion, in the context of our conversation, the Sarah's community, the mandate God has called us to, the word that comes to us and God says, it is, he's given us the power to produce wealth, is so contradictory to the times we live in that if we don't abide in it, we will not be able to ask, make the demand, take the action, and produce what God has already promised. If we do it right, we will bear much fruit. We will be profitable in a crisis. We will be increasing when things are decreasing. We will be breaking forth when people are cutting down. We will be expanding when people are downsizing. So instead of the environment contradicting us, we have a mandate to contradict the environment. We are the ones who are going to contradict this environment. Our lives, the manifestation of who we are, is going to be in defiance to everything the environment is saying. The economy is saying. Finances are saying. We are the contradiction. 
Why? Because when the divine hits the natural, something must change, and it will not be the divine. When the word touches the natural realm, something must change. It will not be the word. So when this truth comes into your life and you abide in it, something must change and it will not be the truth you received. It is you who will change. It is your environment that will change. It is your productivity that will change because the word created this environment that we've allowed to decay, to disintegrate. Now it is our mandate to come from the same source that created it and now put it to order. This is what we're really about. And so, this is what I say. I believe personally, this being the fourth conversation on abiding, in manifesting, and we're talking about outcomes now. If you just take time and allow these four sessions to become a reality for you, allow it to soak in everything you're saying and become who you are, you can now go back to prophetic words you've received. You can now go back to truths that the devil has stolen from you. You can go back to words you have heard, promises you've heard from God, but never ever understood how do I finally see that this is that, walk into the manifestation. If you do that, I can guarantee you that there will be such an exponential and massive shift in your life. Because that's what happened to us. When this clarity came, things so happened that an outsider will say, you're lucky. Oh, God prefers you to others. Oh, you know, it's because you have this name or this title. Or People will give you all sorts of explanations because it is hard to believe that all it took was abiding in the word and to ask whatsoever you desire. And God making sure that the structure, the environment, everything was designed to respond and obey to that word. That's all it is. It's like you've been punching the wrong numbers of your pin until you finally got a reset pin. And you're able to enter the codes you need. And you're able to open up the doors and the environment you need to go into. So while I'm at this, I want to talk about the conversation, the open meeting that we're having on the 29th of July. This is a physical face-to-face -face meeting where we will be digging a little more practically into the issues of meditating in the Word, which again is abiding in the Word. How do you practically do this? How do you consciously do this? We've always thought that meditating is Eastern mythology. It's all about all sorts of strange things. Listen, that was stolen from the Bible. There are probably over 20 scriptures in scripture, about 20 scriptures within the Bible about meditating. And all of them are connected to prosperity, connected to breaking forth, connected to finally stepping into the space God says. So I would ask you, join us in this conversation. It could just change your life. We could finally be able to get into that context that God gave you, that the devil tried to take away from you. Because the Lord said to Joshua, he says, if you meditate in this, and we need to find what does meditate what mean, and in what, how does that work? There's a whole mechanism for that. He says, and you will make your way prosper. The same thing is said in the book of Psalms 1. It says that that man who meditates on the Lord day and night, what does that mean? To meditate day and night. That's what we're going to discuss. It says, whatsoever, again, the same whatsoever here, he puts his hands to do, shall prosper. So meditating in the context of the kingdom truth is connected to prosperity. So if you do not have a meditation model from scripture, you're probably going to struggle to arrive at prosperity. So join us in this conversation 
and let's access God's promises and let's make our way prosperous together. This is where we say, keep it kingdom, keep it pure, and God bless you. Thank you for watching this episode of the Kingdom Conversations. The big question remains, what have you heard? And what are you going to do about it? Keep tracking with us, like and follow us on our social media handles, the Cyrus community on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can send in your questions through Facebook or use the email on your screen. And as Micah 4.4 says, may you be found seated under your vine and under your fig tree. Until our next episode, keep it kingdom, keep it pure.